It's Thursday, March 29th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Simon Edelman, and I'll read from his uh, website when he was with the U.S. Department of Energy. He works with the digital content team to develop, create, and expand visual and audio content that tells the story of the Energy Department. Well, it turns out there are times when the Energy Department didn't want a particular story told. So today in CNN, Simon Edelman writes a piece that begins like this. I was fired from my job at the Department of Energy for releasing public domain photos of a meeting between Rick Perry, Secretary of Energy, and Robert Murray, CEO of Ohio-based Murray Energy. By the way, does anything sound more energetic than Murray Energy? And Murray Energy is a huge coal company. So Edelman goes on to explain that the pictures showed Murray, who donated $300,000 to the Trump campaign, giving Perry an action plan. Murray's company, by the way, had lobbied the Trump administration to end federal public health protections for greenhouse gas emissions and smog pollution and to loosen mine safety rules. And he gives Rick Perry this plan and the men hug and they say they'll get it done. Simon Edelman, in his position, releases the photos and is summarily fired. Now, what this raises to me is, well, I guess the injustice and the attempted cover-up and all that. But I light on this fact, that Simon Edelman's job at the time was the chief creative officer for the U.S. Department of Energy. And it does not shock me that Rick Perry and the energetic Robert Murray are trying to do an end around that would endanger the health of workers for the benefit of Energy Bob, as I'm sure they call him. What really strikes me as interesting is that the Department of Energy has a chief creative officer. You know, other companies, chief creative officer isn't so unusual a job these days. Other companies have them, and some famous chief creative officers include Joe Casada of Marvel Entertainment and Will I Am. His job with 3D Systems is chief creative officer. And I began looking at some other newfangled titles out there. The director of fun is not an unknown job at companies, and a lot of companies have rebranded their front desk receptionist first impressions officer, which is cool. I think the rest of the administration should take a page from the Department of Energy and rebrand some of their titles. I'd like to see the Department of Housing and Urban Development hire a chief furniture procurement officer. Colloquially, he or she would be known as the HUD Hutch Honcho. The Department of Education could have a DeVos translation specialist. John Bolton, he could just go by DJ Flavor Saver. I'll give you that suggestion for free. White House doctor, Ronnie Jackson, he could be called head of veterans affairs. Oh, damn, that just happened. Well, his replacement as Trump's doctor can be cheeseburger negation specialist. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Kellyanne Conway, and Raj Shah, well, I guess they can't all be the chief creative officer. On the show today, I spiel about the trend of some magazines or newspapers telling other magazines or newspapers, hey, don't employ that person from a third magazine or newspaper. I, as a podcast host, can stand athwart this madness and shout stop. But first, she is an amateur cartographer and just the top-notch citizen of the Keystone State. Amanda Holt joined us previously to talk about the Pennsylvania electoral map. The map was redrawn. And Amanda very much wanted a better map, a fairer map, and a less partisan map. Well, she got a map that's a little bit better, kind of more fair, and let us say, differently partisan. Here's Amanda Holt. Mm-hmm. 
So Pennsylvania had a very badly drawn map. It was highly gerrymandered. It greatly favored Republicans in a state that really is almost close to exactly 50-50 Democrat and Republicans. The Supreme Court ordered it redrawn. It was redrawn. And it's a better map. It definitely now favors Democrats more than the old one did. But is it a good map? Is it the best they could have done? No one better to talk to than Amanda Holt, who was a named Citizen Activist of the Year by the Penn Live Consortium of Newspapers in 2012. What she does is she just looks at this problem and tries to draw some maps and draw her way and Pennsylvania's way out of it. Hello, Amanda. How are you? Good. How about you? I'm well. Thank you for asking. So I read a lot of the coverage and at first blanche, there were a lot of stories saying Democrats greatly benefited. Then there was a next wave of stories saying either don't say Democrats are benefited, say democracies benefited. But then some of the data nerds like my friends at 538 and Nate Cohen of the New York Times said, you know, yeah, Democrats are benefited, but they really could have done a better job than they did. What do you think of the map that the Supreme Court drew that the elections are going to be based on this November? I think that the maps show that they didn't really fully take into account their own criteria that they had put forward for this process. I mean, when they made their court order and sort of established the parameters that a new map should be drawn under, they specifically noted that counties and municipalities should be kept whole. And I feel like the map they produced fell well short of that parameter. So the old map, the one that was ordered to be redrawn, had a lot of counties that were split among multiple districts. The new map has half that number, 13 counties split among two or three districts. That's one criteria. Is your contention that's not good enough or you should be looking at different criteria for what makes a good map? I'm saying that when they receive submissions Mm -hmm. of other versions of the map that could be drawn under the new criteria, they're map had more county splits than some of the other maps submitted to them. So there were and they, more municipal splits. They could have just picked a better map, but they didn't. Correct. Any idea why? Well, that's kind of what calls into question. I think that's sort of an unfortunate outcome of this particular map drawing exercise is that an entity that should be known for being impartial and not biased has created a map that seems to have somewhat ignored their own standard. And that does call into question, well, why would they do that? What was their motivation? Because apparently it wasn't just focused on complying with their own order. There are some uh, proposals in the Pennsylvania legislature, including one with, I think, some bipartisan support to give this to an outside entity rather than having, and what we're actually talking about is Pennsylvania drawing its maps for state assembly and the state house, giving it to an outside entity rather than doing it uh, in-house. Do you support that? I guess in my mind, no matter who draws the map, and perhaps maybe other parties could be considered to draw the map, but when if you're looking at sort of the fundamental issue here and how we got to where we are today, it's not so much about who's drawing the maps that has been the issue, but about having those clear and measurable standards. Because if we had clear and measurable standards, then we could hold accountable those drawing the maps. Because it would be, no matter it would be who science. Draws the map, it, it would just essentially be, for, for instance, give me one standard that you think should be put in place. For instance, that they have to have the fewest splits possible. Right. So you'd submit a map and then the one with the fewest splits, clearly it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat drawing that, we could count the number of splits and on that criteria it would succeed. What's another criteria? 
just defining how population equality works and then working to balance those two things would be, I think, an uh, important thing. Because right now, the, at least for state districts, now this isn't true of congressional, but for state districts, it's a bit fluid how different the districts can be in their population. And so if you had a fixed range that you were using, that would help to create kind of a measurable standard there because that then determines how many places need split. For instance, if you used 10%, you'd need a different number of splits than if you did it at, let's say, 1%. Help me go back and explain exactly what you mean. A congressional district can't be more than just a few people different from its neighboring district? In general, yes. But if you can demonstrate that there's a legitimate state interest achieved by deviating from exact equality, courts have permitted that. Even the U.S. Supreme Court permitted that most recently, I believe, with West Virginia, where they allowed, I think it was maybe over 3,000 person difference between their districts in order to meet some legitimate straight criteria that they had. Okay, and so with those criteria in mind, do the best minds in map making, you and the professors and the citizen activists, do they consistently come up with better maps than the politicians and the uh, jurists come up with? What's considered a good map is sort of in the eye of the beholder because everyone comes to it with their own things. I mean, the first thing they look at when you look at a map is you see, well, how did it affect the area I live in, right? So that's yeah. what we all look for first. So I think that whether you would say the outcome would be a better product will depend on how it maybe affects your area and what you think is most important. But the product that will come out will not have been able to have been rigged. So there is a limited amount of discretion that goes into the map, which means that it couldn't have been created to favor one group over another group, for instance. So it's a more impartial product at the end. So let's talk about a specific person, Ryan Costello, who was the uh, congressman, was a congressman from Pennsylvania, is not going to run again because of the way these maps were drawn. And he saw that he'd be now in the same district as perhaps a powerful opponent. And also his district got a little more Democrat. He's kind of a moderate Republican. Just on the specifics, would you say he is an unfortunate casualty of this? Would you say, well, if we're going to get to justice on good maps, we're going to have, you know, some people who did run for office, not run for office? How do you look at the specific case of, you know, Ryan Costello specifically not running for Congress again? I think, yeah, you'll have this when you create different district boundaries to person, the incumbent who's been representing that district will have to evaluate if they want to continue representing the district under the new boundaries. And for various reasons, some may decide they don't want to, and others may decide they want to continue to run. And that's what we see, I think, in all the congressional districts. There are candidates that have decided they want to press on and move forward regardless of what the boundaries look like, and others who have decided not to pursue their candidacy. And finally, do you, knowing what you know, not only about maps, but about politics, I mean, you were the citizen activist of the year. Do you have hope that there are some forces in Pennsylvania which are going to get to a better answer on the question of the best maps? Or do you suspect that it's just going to lurch between whichever party holds sway and there'll be maps that favor Republicans and maps that favor Democrats and they'll go back and forth? I think a lot will depend on whether the legislature is willing to really set aside their self-interest and personal ambition and really focus on defending the voice of the people in their government and whether or not they're willing 
to create those clear and measurable standards in the process so that we can hold map draws accountable. Because without that, we are going to continue to be left with some favoring Republicans sometimes and Democrats, and it's sort of going to be left up to the whim of legislators if we don't create these clear and measurable standards. Amanda Holt is a map expert. Her site is amandae.com. Thank you, Amanda. You're welcome. The Americans podcast goes behind the scenes of the FX series about the pair of Russian spies passing themselves off as D.C.-based travel agents in the 1980s. Oh, I just blew their cover. The morning after every episode of the sixth and final season, June Thomas will present interviews with the show's actors, directors, writers, costume designers, stunt coordinators. They'll explain how the show got made and what it felt like to create it. Tune in every Thursday morning starting March 29th. And now the spiel. I will quote from an article that posted today on Slate by Osita Wanevo. We're now several days into a roiling debate over whether liberals ought to be upset that The Atlantic hired a man who once argued that a quarter of American women should be executed. Wow, that is quite shocking. So I went to investigate. I clicked on the hyperlink that was provided in the article, and it took me not to, as I thought, that argument that a quarter of American women should be executed, but another article on Medium where the headline was, On the Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg and hiring men who want women dead. So that article said, In 2014, Kevin Williamson tweeted that the law should treat abortion like any other homicide. Although Williamson has since deleted his Twitter account, the exchange was immortalized by Rewire News Editor-in-Chief Jody Jacobson, who explained that Williamson not only advocated for abortion to, quote, be treated as premeditated homicide, but also that, quote, women who have had abortions should face capital punishment, namely hanging. Oh my God, I wanted to read the article where Kevin Williamson said that women who have had abortions should face capital punishment, namely hanging. So I clicked on a hyperlink from that Medium article, and I got to the Jody Jacobson article. That article was titled, National Review Writer Calls for Hanging Women Who Have Abortions. Again, there would be no link to an article where Kevin Williamson said this. What really happened, and this is what Jody Jacobson documented, is that Kevin Williamson, who believes that abortion is murder, tweeted that, I believe the law should treat abortion like other homicide. And then in a lost couple of tweets, he is said to have tweeted, I have hanging more in mind. He deleted the tweets, and I do not think that he believes that a quarter of American women should be killed. It seems like a quip that you would like to take back. Also, Williamson himself says he doesn't know what to think about capital punishment. He's of mixed feelings about it. It's crazy. It's a stupid thing to say. But it also clearly seems to me to be a purposefully outrageous statement. Williamson thinks abortion is murder. He thinks murder should be punished. But since abortion is not against the law now, the state can't go punishing its citizens for acts that aren't even outlawed. Williamson is a staunch, staunch libertarian. He would never sign on to that. So I've concluded after a bunch of tweets that it's pretty dishonest to say that Kevin Williamson actually thinks women who have had abortions should be killed. Because he either believes that or he doesn't. And there's tons of evidence that he doesn't. And there's no real evidence other than this tweet 
which I believe was meant to be taken as an exaggeration. No real evidence that he does. Now, Kevin Williamson has also written about race and gender in a way that people who vehemently disagree with him would never write. He wrote about RuPaul's gender insensitively, but insensitively from the perspective of a person who disagrees with him to begin with. Williamson's entire point, which I totally disagree with, same with the abortion thing, do I need to say that? But Williamson's entire point is that gender is a binary, you are either male or female, so there's no real role for sensitivity in determining if someone is male or female. That's his point, and that's how he wanted to say it. So what's the requirement? That writers who we disagree with yeah, can be allowed to opine, but not in the publications we read or work for. And if they are given that opportunity, they have to frame their arguments with our version of sensitivity. And hey, maybe if he comes to write for The Atlantic and not National Review or The Weekly Standard, Kevin Williamson won't refer to a trans person as an effigy of a man. And having an editor say, don't do that, that wouldn't be such a bad thing either. I really don't care if one guy gets one job at one magazine. Today, Osita Waneva wrote a column entitled, There Really Are Plenty of Conservative Columnists. He listed 18 who write for The Atlantic, The New York Times, or The Washington Post. Now, some among them simply are not conservative. And Applebaum, Pulitzer Prize winner, author, founder of the Democracy Post. She quit a London think tank because the think tank was pro-Brexit. She's not conservative. Radley Balco, whose books and writing on the over-policing of America constantly shines a light on systemic racism, which is a phrase he uses pointedly, even among audiences who disagree with that phrase. He's not a conservative. I'm not going to go one by one. Oh, also, I'll do this one. Max Boot, in 2017, he wrote, 2017 was the year I learned about my white privilege. I used to be a smart-alecky conservative who scoffed at political correctness. The Trump era has opened my eyes. He's transitioning from conservative. Again, I'm not going to go one by one. Of the writers who he lists who write for The Post, George Will, Michael Gerson, Charles Krauthammer, they really are conservative columnists. Of the ones who write for The Times, Ross Douthit, David Brooks, Brett Stevens, Barry Weiss, they're not really that conservative. And in the case of Barry Weiss, not conservative, also not a columnist. And of the ones who write for The Atlantic, none of them are columnists, and almost all are just like really, really interesting writers. And what about the denominator when you're trying to argue we have enough conservatives there in the media? I counted 50 writers on the Atlantic masthead who are listed as staff writers or senior editors or some higher position, and Osito Winevo listed four Atlantic writers who are libertarian or conservative. So they're at 8%. We're all good. Look, there's no right number. And again, I don't care if Kevin Williamson's hiring bumps them up to 10% conservative slash libertarian. I know where to find the guy's writing, and I'll seek it out wherever he is. It's just this trend of one magazine telling another magazine, hey, don't hire that guy. Or sometimes, shut up that guy or that woman who you already employ. This weekend, Vox opined, Marine Dowd smeared Monica Lewinsky. Now she's undermining hashtag me too. Dowd should have forfeited her right to talk about sexual harassment years ago. Yes, Marine Dowd shamed Monica Lewinsky back in the 90s. She sure did forfeited her right. Now, at issue specifically was a Dowd profile of Barry Diller, where Diller expressed more sympathy for accused men than abused women. It was a profile. It wasn't a column. 
And the writer, the Vox writer, the editorial director of Vox, in fact, Laura McGann, suggests that Dowd should have, I don't know, began arguing with Diller in that profile, as opposed to giving the septuagenarian business titan a fair length of rope to do whatever he wanted with. McGann, like I said, editorial director of a major and very good news and opinion outlet, if you don't like Maureen Dowd, don't hire Maureen Dowd. What is this? Forfeiting your right to talk business. It is a rampant business. In Slate, another very good news and opinion outlet, there are constant articles arguing against publishing writers or thinkers with thoughts or words we disagree with. Jordan Weissman argued against the Atlantic hiring Williamson. Again, Osita Winevu in Slate, he's fed up with the frequent complaint among conservatives that the left is intolerant of ideas they don't like. So Osita put together an item called Bad Column Bingo. The conceit is, you know you're reading a bad column if you find the following phrases. And among those phrases were offended, Martin Luther King Jr., the Enlightenment, and free speech. A column in my magazine saying the presence of the phrase free speech by a conservative might alert you that it is a bad column. Well, okay, free speech, the First Amendment, that is a restriction on the government. I take that point. But wanting to hear less from the other side, let's put aside the phrase free speech. It is not my idea of free inquiry, free expression, a spirit of inquisitiveness. Am I supposed to see the words free speech and say, ooh, this will probably be a bad column? Three weeks after free speech showed up in bad column bingo by Osita Winevu, it showed up in this slate headline about the University of Chicago. When free speech is a marketing ploy, that article was written by Osita Winevu. I suppose the difference is that free speech was in quotes. Throughout the article, it is not. Now, let me just say or end with this point. Osita argues for ideas that I disagree with in ways that I sometimes respond to, but sometimes that I find lacking. He mostly writes lovely sentences. And though he may find this spiel not to his liking, he has always struck me in our personal interactions as a very, very decent person. But my point is, is that the combination of ideas that I disagree with, or what I see as bad ideas, and arguments that range from compelling to failed, all wrapped up in enticing prose, that is exactly why I think Osita belongs in a magazine of opinion, like Slate. And if Kevin Williamson or any of those 18 other conservatives or libertarians said Osita should be silenced or has forfeited his right to talk about these things, I would think those people are wrong too. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname. He put together a PowerPoint presentation about why Excel files work better with MIDI versions of soft rock songs playing underneath. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader this week. His true title, vice president in charge of Side Eye. Mary Wilson is the gist senior producer, or as she is called by confused Spaniards, senior producer. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, believes that famous but controversial radio producer Raymond Gaffigan not be hired by this company. Gaffigan, you see, is the visionary who pioneered the host walking on gravel while he voices a story outside the studio. But then he let loose with a series of controversial tweets about asphalt. Guy's dead to us. The gist. I believe that because of my past insensitivity about the appeal of the fribble, I have forfeited my right to opine about any other fraps, blizzards, or like beverages. I have to live with that. Umpuru de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. 
I was on uh, the Brian Williams show, and he said, you know who is great? That Pennsylvania map woman. I'm like, oh, thank you. And he said, you have to have her back. So I said, you're Brian Williams. You get to book my show today. Yes, very good. That's right. There you go.